Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer and columnist for the Conservative Institute, where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles that I've seen that week. This week, the newsletter was back, so if you signed up, you would have gotten that. It would include all my thoughts this week on the Suleimani strike, just talking about who he is, how we struck him, and just the consequences of that. I'm going to talk a little bit about that today, so I won't go too far into that. My two columns this week covered both, mainly the Iran thing, covering it from just the media angle. The first column that I wrote covered how I believe the Obama-era Iran echo chamber, as put forward by Ben Rhodes and others in the Obama administration, where they used the national media to push forward the narrative that they wanted on Iran. I think that that's if it's not back entirely, a form of it is back that's pushing a certain narrative on this entire Suleimani strike and Iran as a whole. And the other thing that I covered was in my second column was that I believe that the media has just cried wolf too many times on Iran and how when it comes to criticizing or even deciding what to do on Iran, too many of our solutions seem like it's you're either going to war with Iran or you just can't do anything at all and you have to rely on the Iran deal. So when you put those two columns together, that's why I think overall the Iran echo chamber, as Ben Rhodes put it, has come back because that was the same deal that they used. They always put forward, hey, you're always wanting to go to war, so that is the, you have to go with our deal. It's either war or the deal, and that's the same thing you're dealing with here, so... I think that's what's happening here. My columns go through that. You can read more in the newsletter about what has happened just moving forward with the strike and how it was a strategic success along those lines. So if all that interests you, you can either go there now or after the show. You can sign up and get it all in your email inbox at thebeltwayoutsiders.com. That's just the easiest way for you to get my columns and analysis to you. That list isn't for sale, so you don't have to worry about any more spam. You just get my newsletter analysis and my columns. So finally, if you like what you hear here or enjoy my written work, make sure to subscribe and review this podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Those five-star reviews help listeners and readers like you find me, and I look forward to hearing from you in those reviews. All right, so we're going to jump into the show this week. This week, I'm covering the strike on Iran Suleimani, as I mentioned earlier, and just looking at how it looks a little bit more effective now and how it's sort of changed the landscape in the Middle East. And then I'm also going to talk about how this is another impeachment week because we're expecting Nancy Pelosi to hand over the articles of impeachment to the Senate that will eventually lead to an actual trial. We're almost to the point where a trial is going to happen But there's some interesting politics that are happening here that could affect what Pelosi does. And what she does will tell us a lot of what she is thinking, both not just about impeachment, but also her place in the House and what she thinks potentially about the presidential field and how she's interacting with that. So those are the topics for today. And stay tuned at the end, because as you may be aware, the Tennessee Titans beat the Baltimore Ravens. It was a glorious victory, and I'm going to share with you my favorite clip from that because I found the clip that I wanted of the touchdown pass that I like the most, and we'll jump into that too. All right, so that's the topics for today's show, so I hope you enjoy. So first off, we're going to talk about the Suleimani strike 
that I covered in the newsletter, covered last week some, and also in my columns. And so I want to kind of talk about it in a broader context because we're a few weeks, a few couple weeks out from the strike and from Iran's reaction now. That all happened last week, so we're a little bit out of the heat of the moment so we can step back and look at it sort of just as a normal situation, a normal foreign policy decision that a presidential administration decided to make. So you can be a little bit more objective when you step back and look at that. The first thing to note is that all of the head-on-fire reactions from the media about us entering World War III did not come to pass. You saw that if you if you followed this happening live on Twitter or anywhere else where there were just people reacting in real time to what was happening when Iran started sending missiles over, it was just outright panic among the media. Now, obviously, a missile attack is serious, but if you've been following what Iran's been doing in the news to any extent, you knew this was not the first time that Iran had chosen this form of provi- provocation. The media chose to go hit hair on fire on this one because it immediately followed the death of Soleimani and it just the beheading of all of these special forces for Iran in their terrorist network. So that's sort of what the media was trying to do, to say this was somehow more significant than other times without connecting it both to the past as well as whether or not it actually connected well with what the U.S. did. So there was no World War III. Neither of the countries escalated out of control, and there were no off-ramps taken by anyone except for the Iran here. They're the ones who've chosen not to escalate any further because they are the ones who got the message here. So none of the things that the media said was a danger here, like war or escalation beyond control or Trump flying off his handle on this, none of that took place. In fact, if you wanted to look at this in any anyway, I would say it's a textbook example of what deterrence looks like, what good deterrence looks like, where you have a country like Iran who is rattling their sabers, rattling their swords with the United States, trying to push them back and provoke them to do something, or just hit back at us and try to get us out of the region, and then we pop them so hard that they have to react to it, in this case, sending missiles over, but they don't want to react too hard because they don't want to get into a shooting match with us. That's the thing you have to remember about Iran. This is not a strong country. They appear stronger and punch above their weight sometimes because they use terrorist networks to reach farther than what their conventional weapons can do. We have conventional power. We can hit them from pretty much anywhere, as we proved with this strike. Iran is the one sending their people into Iraq, where we have soldiers and people who are working to try to build up the Iraqi military and just Iraq as a free country overall. And Iran is the one coming in there trying to thwart our efforts there, and they are sending their military in to do that. So when they step into our place like this, where we are, and try to affect what we're doing, and they're also shooting missiles at us, provoking us at our embassies and other things, when we hit them like this, that is a reminder to them that they have to step back. That is deterrence in a nutshell. And so, for all, just if you're looking at this, just objectively, this worked, at least in the short term, at a minimum of the short term. I would expect Iran to do things long term, but not on a conventional path. What you expect when you're looking at Iran 
is that they're going to use their proxies. So terrorist groups like Hezbollah or local militias that they set up in countries like Iraq, Lebanon, or elsewhere to hit back at the United States. You expect them to use other groups to make their point, to make these terrorist just hits in various places in the Middle East. That's what Soleimani did so effectively for all these years. He helped beef up anti-U.S. presence in places like Iraq and helped promote some of these terrorist activities that struck back at the U.S. Now, we've beheaded that, that big force for them, but it's still there as a force that they can use even though the head is gone. So I would expect them to try to revamp that, get new leadership in, and try to do things more to hit back in the United States long-term. But on a short-term basis, as far as using their conventional power, like firing missiles at us or provoking us with in the Persian Gulf, going after our Navy, things like that, I would expect that to take a back burner at this point. And if it doesn't, we'll look at our options. But for right now, I would say that deterrence has worked because Iran is the one that chose to back down here. They fired their missiles. Most of the reports that I saw said that the missiles didn't hit anything important and were specifically aimed not at U.S. troops. And that was the reason that we hit them like this, because they went after U.S. troops. The United States warned Iran time and time again that you could not harm United States troops. That was the red line. They crossed it, and we made them pay for that. So that's the, that's the lesson here for them. If they're going to do all these things, they can't harm a hair on any U.S. contractors or soldiers. That's the red line they can't cross. So that's going to change their strategic look at the region and what they're trying to do. They're not going, they're, they should, if this works correctly, not harm our soldiers there. They'll still go after the Iraqis and other Middle Eastern groups, but they will not go after U.S. soldiers or assets in the region. So I think this was a good move because it gives us that strategic advantage there. It also helps also our allies, specifically Israel. Now, Israel is just in, it's an open secret that they're a nuclear power in the region. They'll never admit it, but everyone believes when you look at them that they're a nuclear power. And their main ambition right now is to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. They don't want that at all. Now, Iran is using this as a, as a situation to work back toward. They're saying they're just working back towards nuclear, their nuclear goals. Now, they're saying that they're banging some parts of the nuclear deal, but not others. Basically, if it benefits them, they're all right with it. But if it's not, they're backing out of it. Um, that's a very broad version of what they're doing. There's a lot of particulars there. But in reality, nothing's actually changed. They're still doing the same things that they were doing before. They're just using this as a pretext to say that they're doing more of it. So the interesting thing is that there was a report that came out yesterday that said that Israel helped us in finding and targeting Suleimani here. So they gave us the intel to help us make the hit here to hurt Iran. Now, this obviously plays into Israel's interests, he was a thorn in their side for decades, and so it removed one of their key things in the region. So they're obviously happy with this. But the other reason is that it shows them where Iran is in their nuclear ambitions. It shows them that by allowing them to behead the snake here, as it were, and see how everything scrambles after that. So 
it's a good move overall um, if you're looking at where this sends the region. Not a lot's changed. Israel doesn't want Iran to get nukes. We don't want them to get nukes either. Israel's launched a number of attacks, either covertly, cyber, just direct conventionally, all against Iran to prevent this one key thing. One of the very largest cyber attacks that's occurred so far that kicked off a lot of our knowledge on what's happening between countries was one launched by Israel against Iran, just targeting their their nuclear, I can't remember if it was the plant or just their systems overall, and it just brought them to their knees. So Israel's going to continue doing this, and with their help here, we took out one of these commanders that was a thorn in both of our sides. So you're probably going to see more. If Iran continues to try to provoke us in various ways, you'll probably see more of these strikes. But the key will be for Iran to not actually harm any soldiers. You can bomb a base all you want to. You can't harm a U.S. soldier while who are over there. That's the red line. So that's sort of the 30,000-foot view looking at the region. Some of the narrative points that you may have seen may have involved the protests that are happening in Iran. The media jumped on some early on where people were mourning the death of Soleimani, and they tried to make a big deal out of this, but most of that was fake. They were jumping on fake reports, not fake reports, it was actually happening, but Iran is a... It's a fascist state, basically. The government runs everything, so these people were mourning because if they didn't, it was under threat of death. The real protests happened on the other side, where people were cheering for his death or cheering for in support of the United States or cheering in support of freedom in Iran. Those are real because the people who are doing that are doing so under the threat of death. They know that if they do that, they risk the power of the government coming down on their head to hit them. So part of our solution here long term, beyond just these strikes, is to support these pro-freedom groups in Iran and help them, and if not help them, but encourage them to grow in size and in number because we want this to grow and to topple over the evil regime in Iran. So these there are pro-U.S. groups, there are secular groups there, and those people deserve praise and credit, which is why you've seen a pivot from Donald Trump where he's tweeting in Farsi and to show his support for these groups. Because everyone knows that Iran is not a stable government. It's not a stable economy. Our sanctions have worked Iran got some life in it when Obama let up on the sanctions and got them access to capital markets and cash. But when we reimpose them, we've started to choke them off again, and we have to continue doing that because it allows us to strengthen these protest groups in Iran who want this all to end. They don't want this government over their head. And Iran knows this because they're actually talking right now about switching the entire country from an internet where the people have access to the entire world and the world net and switching it to an intranet, which means that people will be have a constricted version of what the internet could be. They will be restricted to what they can get locally within their country because the access to the outside world is getting people around the information from their government. They know they're being lied to, they know what's happening, and they have access to apps like Telegram and others that give them the ability to hide and message back and forth with others without the government seeing it. 
all of this is a danger to a government like Iran. So they want to stop this. They're seeing themselves and they're feeling threatened here. So that's one of the reasons why they've been trying to provoke the U.S. into an attack or any even a war, a quasi-war to some extent, because that would allow them to the excuse to squeeze down domestically. We don't want to give them that room or that rope. We want them to hang themselves and not harm the protesters. So it's very been a very smart pivot by Trump by tweeting in Farsi and supporting these groups and also executing this hit on Soleimani. It's a very specific thing, and frankly, it's some of the best policy towards Iran we've seen in a while. Will it work long term? I don't know. These things always have ripple effects where things happen that you don't see in the moment that happen later on down the road. So this is just on the outside looking at it, you know, in the moment here, out of the heat of the moment, but still in the moment, it looks like it was smart policy. We have encouraged some deterrence here by killing one of their commanders. We're supporting the internal resistance against Iran. These things are going to work in tandem, and hopefully we will see more changes down the road. The thing to watch with this, as we wrap up this segment, is that you have to watch for terrorist acts down the line. That's what Iran is known for, these proxy attacks. Iran launching a conventional war against America via missiles or something, or rockets or anything else, that's not their real forte. In fact, so I I would even caution here that we haven't seen the true response yet from Iran. You'll probably see, maybe even years from now, where they will make some kind of attack through a proxy like Hezbollah or something, and that group will say that they did this for the killing of the Iranian commander. And that will be their true response here. They had to do something militarily here to say that they did something, but that was really more for a domestic show than anything internationally. Because the the missiles that Iran launched at us were useless. They didn't do anything to us. Our soldiers were protected, and so now we wait and see what Iran will actually do. So those are the things to look for there. It was a good strike. We'll continue to watch Iran and learn more in the coming weeks and days. And the key thing to watch is for more terrorist attacks, unfortunately. When we come back, we'll cover the impeachment scandal and how it is re-entering another impeachment week and potentially the start of the actual trial. Back over in the United States, we're covering more of a domestic angle here. Pelosi is expected to turn over the articles of impeachment, finally. So if you've been listening or reading what I've been writing for a while, you know that Nancy Pelosi has been engaging in what's known as withholding the articles of impeachment in an attempt to gain leverage over the Senate and what the Senate is going to do in a Senate trial. Now, if you know what I've written, you know that this is utterly ridiculous because the House has absolutely no leverage, legally or politically, on how it conducts a trial. There's nothing that Pelosi can do. There's nothing that she can coax. If she, if she doesn't turn over the articles at all, Mitch McConnell is going to go about his day and confirm more judges and just go about his day and not think another thing about impeachment. If she does turn them over, then he's going to use the rules from the Clinton era impeachment and march forward that way. The House is not, I mean, the Senate here is not going to deal with any new witnesses because we were told 
during the House investigation that everything we needed to impeach Donald Trump was contained in the hearings conducted by Adam Schiff and the Judiciary Committee. So all this talk about how there's new witnesses and they have to be called and there's all this information that has to be gone through. It is House Democrats led by Nancy Pelosi and Adam Schiff who said that we didn't need to know any of this and none of it was needed for them to impeach Donald Trump. Now, legally speaking, they were right. They didn't have they didn't need any of that information to impeach Donald Trump. They proved that. They on a strict party line vote, they impeached Donald Trump, and now they want the Senate to clean up that mess that they created. That's not going to happen. Mitch McConnell is going to hold them to what they said, that all you need to impeach Donald Trump is what is contained in the House testimony and the witnesses that they called. Now, the problem with that is that the House Democrats did not set up a very convincing or thorough case. There are other witnesses, there is other evidence, and they refused to go through with it. In fact, they've included in one of their articles, they said, hey, you know, Donald Trump's obstructing because he refuses to turn over information. One of the people that they would say is obstruction here is John Bolton. Now, you could get John Bolton to speak if you actually subpoena him. That offer was there for the House. Nancy Pelosi not only didn't bother to subpoena him, she's now blaming Trump for all of this. That doesn't make any sense at all. This entire thing is just a political charade. It's a game, and none of it plays in Pelosi's favor. They said they didn't need anything else to impeach, so they went ahead with it, and now they're expecting the Senate to do more, and this is their gambit to try to get leverage over any moderate Republicans. And McConnell's just not going to play that game. He holds all the cards here. So that brings us to Wednesday, which is the expected date. In and around that is when we expect the articles to arrive in the Senate, which would then trigger a trial. And Pelosi and the House have no say on what rules are going to go into place. So this is no longer about the trial or leverage anymore. It's about Pelosi's image. What you're watching now, I think, and Jonathan Turley brought this up in an article for The Hill, is that you're watching Pelosi manage her image to try to appear like she is more powerful or more thorough than what she otherwise is. Then, and if it's not that that she's doing, although I think that's the most explanatory thing you can do, you can find here. If it's not about that, the other thing that's happening here is that this is Pelosi working on behalf of the Democratic establishment to try and influence the results of the Democratic primaries. So there are some Democratic senators on the left, who've been hitting Pelosi for this nonsense on Impeach and Behold. Diane Feinstein, I believe, is one of them out in California. And she basically said what Pelosi was doing was a joke. It didn't make any sense whatsoever. And she was forced to take that back by Pelosi and pretty much made to say, you know, Pelosi is actually very smart and strategically sound. We're just waiting and getting frustrated with this waiting. And then she went on a rant about McConnell. The first one is the truth here. There's absolutely nothing to be gained by Nancy Pelosi holding these articles. Nothing at all. Everything, all the benefits go to the House Republicans. They're ecstatic, both on the House and the Senate side, that Pelosi is putting an asterisk on her own impeachment. Let me repeat that. Republicans are thrilled with what Pelosi is doing here. And I don't think most in 
you know, mainstream media places that you'll see like CNN, the New York Times, and elsewhere, they're not really driving this point home hard enough for their readers. Republicans are gaining ground here on how Democrats are handling impeachment. And through this, what Turley notes in his piece is that this is actually just a vanity play by Pelosi. She's trying to project that she has more power than she actually does and that she can try to get power over McConnell. None of this is true. She has absolutely no power here. And I think Turley has a point. This is a vanity play by Pelosi. She has to appear that she has more control over her caucus than she actually does. Because she actually has very little. Noah Rothman had a piece where he wrote that she just lost the plot. And I, I think that's pretty much this, the case here. She does not control the narrative on what Congress is doing. And if you're a House Speaker and you can't control that, you basically have no no control whatsoever. It's reminiscent if you go back and you think of John Boehner for the Republicans and how he wasn't able to stop one of the dumber fights that happened, which was the government shutdown that Ted Cruz initiated over Obamacare. The Republicans had absolutely no leverage over the Obama administration to change anything about Obamacare. They were the House. Democrats held the presidency and the Senate at the time when that shutdown took place. And when Republicans decided to shut the government down over that, all the blame, all the political blame, went to them. And this is the same thing here. Bander wasn't able to control that. He just had to ride the wave and go with it. And that's pretty much what Pelosi is doing here. She can't, she can't decide where this wave is going. She just has to go with it. So she has far less control than she than she's projecting, and so that sort of gives this this withholding the articles thing a sort of vanity play. That's the first way you can read it. The other way that you can read it is that if it started out that way, where she was trying to do something to gain leverage or was a vanity play, it's shifted now because she and the establishment have realized they have the ability to use impeachment as a way to impact the Democratic presidential field for Democrats here. And that is, you have to know the rules for how an impeachment works here, especially the the Clinton rules that McConnell is going to use here. If you're a senator and you're sitting in a trial, you can't say anything, you can't leave, you have to be there for the trial, you have to be quiet, you have to listen. And so if you're running for president, it's very hard to run for president in a place like Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, or South Carolina when you're sitting in the Senate listening the entire time to impeachment testimony. In fact, that your, your campaign may go on, but it's going on without you. So there are people like Bernie Sanders and potentially Elizabeth Warren who have burned a lot of bridges with establishment Democrats. And if the establishment is worried that these people could win, they might use impeachment as a chance to boost who they do want to win, somebody like Joe Biden, or even Pete Buttigieg, who is sitting here as sort of a quasi-member of the establishment lane of the party. He hasn't held higher office or anything, but he does have that smell of being a person who is establishment-like. He's not exactly Joe Biden, but he has that same aura to people who are voting in that lane, which is the largest group of voters in the Democratic Party, by the way. There's a reason they want this group to win. 
So if you're looking at this and you're an establishment part of the Democratic Party, impeachment becomes then a very useful tool because you can effectively sideline Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. You can use it to shut them up right as we head into the Iowa caucuses. So when are those held? February 3rd. So we're just a few weeks away here from people actually casting votes and impacting how the presidential field is going to shake out. So if you're trying to impact that, you start taking people off the map against their will, and an impeachment trial would do exactly that. And, you know, you would expect an impeachment trial to last anywhere from three to six weeks. McConnell may try an early on thing where you end it all out right at once, and there's probably not enough votes for that. I haven't seen any whip counts on that point. But, and this is a big but here, if you can convince somebody like Bernie Sanders to impose impeachment because it's just being used as a cudgel against his campaign by Democrats who no longer really care whether or not Donald Trump should be impeached, but only as a part of using it to harm his campaign or harm the socialist or progressive cause overall, you could get some Democrats to start turning against this. That's the interesting thing here, this sort of undercurrent. So will the trial impact the race? Maybe. And if it does, it should help Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg. Those are the people on the ground. So what will happen? I mean, who knows? We haven't seen this before, so you're trying to project forward. But that point that I made about this impacting how Sanders and his supporters view the Democratic Party is key here because both Donald Trump and Kevin McCarthy in the House, the minority leader in the House, they've both picked up on this and they're trying to use this as a way to divide the Democratic field against itself. So Trump made a tweet about it talking about how Bernie Sanders is doing pretty good in the polls and we should watch that and see what happens. And Kevin McCarthy gave an interview where he talked about how this was, Pelosi, when her she's withholding these articles here, how it was an attempt to harm Bernie Sanders and support the anti-Bernie wing of the Democratic Party. Now, whether or not this is happening or not, no one actually knows, but they're playing on a truth here. And that truth is, as we know, in 2015 and 2016, the Democratic establishment lined itself up against Bernie Sanders and tried to hamstring his entire run. The WikiLeaks dumps that came out showed that the Democratic Party did everything in its power to prevent Bernie Sanders from winning. Now, why they did this, I don't know. Clinton may have been weak, but she was still going to win that race. She had the support of every minority group in the Democratic Party, which meant it didn't really matter how many white voters Bernie Sanders was winning over, Hillary Clinton was still going to win. But, you know, McCarthy and Trump are playing off that because we have that history. Bernie Sanders supporters know that. And so now here we are again, and they could be using impeachment as a means of accomplishing the same thing that happened before. There was an Associated Press article that came out a few days ago that talked about how the Democratic establishment was worried about Bernie Sanders. So they're worried about this, they see him coming, and they don't want him to win. A few months back, when Elizabeth Warren was first making her surge forward and her second uh, surge to the top of the polls, there was a story that came out that said that Obama administration officials, former Obama administration officials, 
were very angry with Warren's campaign because she kept all her policies basically were a tacit admission that everything the Obama administration stood for was bad for democratic politics. And when we're only four years removed from the Obama administration, that's a pretty crazy place to be when you think about it because Obama left office as a widely liked president. So Warren's burned some bridges here too. I think it could impact her similarly. It's just all the angst in the Democratic Party is aimed more squarely at Bernie Sanders. So if you're trying to figure out a way where you could remove him from the field, this would be a way to do it. Now, that obviously implies the Democrats are playing a very vicious game of politics here and that they saw this coming or they saw the potential for this and they're now trying to execute that. Who knows? Honestly, who knows? I don't think, honestly, that they're smart enough to do that. I've seen nothing out of Nancy Pelosi's actions to, that suggest, you know, any at any time in this any time in the last six to twelve months that she actually is the master strategist that everyone ascribes her of being. I think that's pretty much gone now. She doesn't have that edge. She's beholden to the progressive swings of her party. She's been there so long now that she's practically becoming a moderate instead of one of the extremists in the group party, which is an insane thing to think about because she's not a moderate at all on any topic. So the key here for Trump and Republicans is seeing whether or not you can expose that fault line and then either get them to oppose impeachment or cause chaos on the impeachment thing, or even potentially to be so disgusted by this that they just don't vote in 2020. So if you can get any one of those things, you score a major win against Democrats if you're Trump and the Republicans. Because you're causing them to, you're putting them in a position that they don't want to be in. It's not just about impeachment anymore, it's about the politics behind it. Democrats always want to talk about substance when it comes to the impeachment proceedings, and Republicans are trying to get it more on the politics side. And right now, if you're watching this, Republicans are winning that advantage because it is moving into a debate over politics here. And we'll see here if you take Bernie Sanders and all the others who are in the Senate, if you take them on the presidential campaign trail, we'll see how they actually react here. And if they decide that this impeachment proceeding is just a joke and it's not going to help them to be there at all, it's going to be interesting to see how they actually go about trying to navigating this because um, the Democratic base wants impeachment, but if you're running for president, it might be bad for business to be taking yourself off the field just weeks away from Iowa. That's all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, reach out to me in the contact information in the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning, so make sure to sign up for that, and you'll get the next issue when it comes out. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I'm going to leave you, as I said and I promised, with my favorite call of the game of the Tennessee Titans versus the Baltimore Ravens. I bought a t-shirt precisely aimed at the call made in this game, talking about how tight end Johnny Smith made a spectacular grab, and he was inbounds using only his left butt cheek. 
And what we learn from this is that one left butt cheek equals two feet. That's what my t-shirt says. I can't wait to wear it for the next game. So here you go. Enjoy this touchdown because it broke the Ravens. It was the first score against them. And it opened the floodgates to knocking them off. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. To back it up to the 12. Tannehill tosses end zone. Oh! Jonu Smith touchdown. Spectacular grab. Working against Brandon Carr. And the Titans strike first. A brilliant one-handed catch in the back of the end zone. Fighting with Carr there. The hand left hand goes out. Does he control it before he's out of bounds? Well, the fans just got to look at it. That it's... left cheek may have been down. <laughs> One left cheek works uh, like two knees, right? Uh, Gene Steratore, of course, with us here in the booth. He's watching these replays as we are. <laughs> Gene, what do you think? I agree with Dan about the left cheek equaling two feet, Dan. Can you, can you 